0: Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw, I'm your host, Nicholas Rapold. A while back I had a conversation with another critic, Nicholas Russell, about the portrayal of the police in movies. The general idea was that the demonstrations and marches for justice in 2020 seemed to open the possibility of a paradigm shift on many fronts. So we decided to look at movies featuring the police with fresh eyes and think about the different assumptions that go into making and watching them. About culture, about society, about genre. How does a 1970s drama like Report to the Commissioner look today? Or a movie from 20 years ago, Training Day? What about the bizarro alternate justice system of Minority Report? Nicholas and I talked about a range of movies from different perspectives, without any grander goal than reflecting on what exactly is going on in each of them. So it's a bit of a, a theme podcast episode for a change, I guess. And for my co-pilot on, on this, we've actually, I think, talked around this and kind of tested the waters with some of this on, on a couple of previous episodes already, I think. Um, but I'm very happy to be joined by uh, the critic, uh, Nicholas Russell. Hello, Nicholas.
1: Hey, Nick. How's it going? Glad to be
0: here. This idea kind of kind of came up a little and we we tried to come up with some list of movies that we might talk about.
1: Yeah, I mean like I think the you know the times that you and I have talked on this podcast of when the subject has come up I guess it's always been in the context of more recent movies wherein there is a very specific theme of racism or you know social inequality and in that vein the cops are a sort of specter that like lurks in the background and you know they're they're like the boogeyman kind of where their presence is very calculated and because of that to me you know it rings very hollow sometimes when they are one overwhelmingly white and two portrayed to be like just like completely evil. And so I think that is a symptom of like, you know, recent discourse in Hollywood, I think, but I think it is useful to uh go back. Not even not necessarily just go back, but think about other movies where the cops play either a very prominent role or a different kind of role and see like how that reflects reality if it does.
0: Yeah. And this probably goes without saying, but I mean, what makes it a, a fertile subject as well is that obviously police are, they're the day-to-day manifestation of the state for, you know, the, the average kind of citizen, you know, yeah, they loom so large in, in our fictions as well. All of this kind of melds together to make them these kind of, I don't know, kind of walking narratives about that we tell ourselves constantly about how we want society to run in a way. And uh, it's, but it's at the same time, it's a narrative that we're not in control over really. Um, And obviously affects different groups of people very differently. You know, I I thought about this a lot. There was actually a movie called a cop movie at Berlin this year. And it's one of the things that got me thinking a little bit is how it showed how police officers have to perform this role of authority and, and I think, you know, one or two of the movies that we're going to talk about, that's pretty central, the, the role-playing. And one of the ways it kind of manifests is in, you know, movies where where cops are corrupt in some way. I don't know. I think we agreed that one good movie for, uh, as a way, way into discussing, is uh, Training Day. So 20 years ago, it did come out like a month, maybe, after September 11th.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, a quick recap for people who've seen it or people who just haven't seen it. It's one of those uh, one-day movies. So Ethan Hawke's character is new to to a division of the LAPD, I'm pretty sure. It takes place in LA, and so he comes under the wing of Denzel Washington's character, who is an narcotics officer who's, like, this very decorated, well-respected guy. And as they go throughout the day, you kind of... Not kind of. You realize that Denzel's character is extremely corrupt and this ex- like very brutal person. And Ethan Hawke is sort of painted as the like wet-behind-the-ears idealist who wants to do the right thing and is constantly pressured into violating his own sense of ethics, either for the greater good, which is a lot of like how Denzel frames it. Some, sometimes. Sometimes he also just doesn't care but also to see what happens. And, you know, as you go on, like they talk to former cops who are now drug dealers. They are like stealing money from crime scenes or fabricating warrants. And, and you all realize that this is a ploy for Denzel to be able to steal enough money to pay back. I think like the Russian mob or something, because he had killed one of their members and, ironically las vegas where i am um and at the end you know there's like the very famous scene where denzel is you know surrounded by this like neighborhood in la that like hates him and like everything's gone wrong and ethan hawk gets away and you know denzel does this whole king king kong and got shit on me thing um but training day is Special for a number of reasons. I mean, Denzel's performance is probably the standout reason for that, but I also think as a movie that is coming off within a decade of Rodney King happening and this maybe like overly sensitized society in America, like after 9 11 it's a it's a weird movie for that time i guess it is ethan hawk is still like the good guy and like and the good guy is still a cop and so like there's there is this layer underneath the like rampant corruption that's portrayed that there are still the good guys out there who want to do the right thing and and will put their lives on the line in order to do so and that not everyone is able to be corrupted and And there's still hope for this profession because it comes down to individuals. I think that's like the thing that normally is what you see, even in movies about corrupt cops is that it revolves around a core group of people that themselves do not indict the entire profession of police work. And because of that, no matter how, you know, vindictive or, critical the movie is you know there's still a lingering kind of like oh okay so the thesis is if only we had good people as cops everything would work out and you know i think in the context of last summer where we are now i mean like the last however long really like decades that's an interesting thing to think about because i don't know that a lot of people agree with that anymore i think. More and more people are entertaining the idea that cops don't need to be around, that they are not good at what they do, and that you know, no matter how many single people who have pure hearts or whatever are trying to do their best, it's like you know you're going up against an institution and not this like diffuse system of oversight wherein you know there's not like independent police departments that like that you know function to like cater to the community that they're in i mean that's how a lot of police would like to be and how they want to portray themselves but even in something like training day like there is this weird itch in the back of my head where it's like oh that's a shame that all this bad stuff happened because I can see how it would work. And I think that might be the point, you know, like that's how you Mm. get people to, to, to defend that kind of thing. It's like, Oh, okay, well the intentions are good. So why don't we keep trying? I think we might be past that point now.
0: Yeah. I think that's really sharp way of framing it because you know, when you have, These very gripping, you know, obviously dramatically ramped up complicated stories of individuals, it can all sort of seem beside the point when, you know, the critiques being being made are are systemic ones. So that's a point that, you know, definitely... (laughs) you know, I has come to mind to me, you know, over the past year, when I'm watching, you know, Training Day or or another movie, it almost can take one a little out of the fiction momentarily, because a movie like Training Day or any number of movies assume a stable sense of of justice. I mean, the interesting thing that then happens for me is that the movie becomes more of a fiction than it might have otherwise. Um, And that's, That's something that often leaps out to me, you know, when you're watching movies, especially like around, let's say like 1990, uh, when a lot of movies were obsessed in a new way with like, you know, gritty street reality. Um, And a lot of it is kind of embarrassing um, because it feels like movies that are made to kind of feed people's preconceptions and feeding on fears. And Train Day is a movie that in a way seems to like look back. Uh, maybe more than it looks forward. Um, it, it seems like it's trying to find the drama within the law enforcement.
1: Yeah, well, there's an interesting thing there, too, just because I think that, like, Training Day, it's a very unique movie in that, and maybe it's, it's the case for any well-made movie, no matter, like, how dated it is, is still fresh. It's like, I don't know that I like training day but it is an effective movie and i think that like it dramatizes the like morality of police of people we deem criminals and it does so within a framework of what we consider justice right like like the american perception of justice is revenge like it's retribution it's punishment like that is how we especially narratively in a lot of things define whether or not someone has won and even then the like idea of winning is like a very weird sort of way to think about it like in reality but also like whether or not the guy got caught and is punished like that is a very big part of why the end of that movie is very iconic and sort of like satisfying is because denzel after all the shit he does like gets what's coming to him and it's like oh yeah like how poetic like and i think movies that are commenting on corruption in any sort of state system they either have that option which is to like kind of go for a sweet or bittersweet ending or just outright cynicism where it's like ha ha like you can't win which like is kind of the uh, the purview of movies like Seven or mm. a movie like... There's this movie from 1975 called Report to the Commissioner. It would make a good double feature with Training Day because it's mm. about this cop. He's, he's played by Michael Moriarty. He's like this, like... <laughs> he's like a hippie, sort of. Like, they treat him like a hippie. He's like a new undercover detective in, in New York. And... He is tasked with finding this missing woman who he doesn't know is actually an undercover cop. And she's trying to get close to this uh, drug dealer played by Tony King, this uh, black drug dealer. And there's this very amazing sort of like, you can only find this really in the 70s. Like, they would never do this anymore. Like, where Michael Moriarty's character, he one finds the woman and. She knows he's a cop, but she, but he doesn't know she's a cop. So she's like, "You need to get out of here because you're ruining my cover." We'll meet tomorrow, and then because he's so stupid, like she misses the appointment, and he goes back to the like apartment where she's like shacking up with this drug dealer, and the shootout ensues where him he kills her. Like, and so then there's this whole thing where like the drug dealer is running away and cop is chasing him and they go into i think it's a Saks fifth avenue department store and like they end up trapped in an elevator together and they like have their it's like a literal it's like that this one spider-man meme like they have their guns pointed at each other and it's wild because it's like that image especially for the 70s is like you know pretty sure he's like blonde in the movie this like white blonde haired dude against this like Black drug dealer, like the image itself is so evocative mm. and like and provocative, and it's just really just like not. It it is so literal, <laughs> like that. It's kind of amazing and like it's kind of cool, like because because it's so ridiculous. There is like it kind of lifts itself away from being real or like the duty of being realistic, and now is like this whole other thing that like allows you to think about that juxtaposition on like a larger level, which is like at at its best is what cinema does. It's like, you know, it, it, it Mm -hmm. takes something and like, and wrenches it away from reality, but still reflects back on reality. And like the way that movie ends is like in classic form, sort of like inside man also with Denzel, these two develop a rapport, (laughs) like as they're sitting in the elevator and like, you know, the whole place ends up surrounded by cops and they finally like agree to like, they're going to get out, like they're going to let each other leave and like, they're going to get out through the ceiling of the elevator, I think is what happens. And it's all for naught because then the police just shoot the drug dealer and kill him. And so like, there's like this real sort of like, ah, fuck, what, like, what the hell was that? And then like the movie keeps going and, Everyone is just trying to save their asses because Michael Moriarty's character killed another police officer, like, because he's a fucking idiot. And so they just make it so that it seems like there was this, like, weird lover's triangle (laughs) between the three of them, and that, like, he shot her out of jealousy, blah, blah, blah. Mm. And the whole thing kind of gets papered over. And that's an interesting, to me, example just because it's so. It almost plays like fantasy now. Like I have no idea like how it was received when it came out, you know, but like to watch that movie now is kind of amazing. Cause it's like, wow, it's really not at all made with a view of being sensitive or didactic in any way. It's like really just played for straight drama. And there's some like lurid, component to that that kind of makes it more real in a in a way that is like kind of hard to describe. Mm. And now it's like like you were saying, like there's this sort of fixation on hyper reality when it comes to portraying any number of things, just because we are entering or not entering, we are in this very, very messy conversation about what it means to portray people who are marginalized, what it means to let them or give them an the opportunity to tell certain stories. And a lot of that comes back to okay, like I have traditionally been ostracized from this genre, from this medium, from this whatever. And I want to portray that truth and I'm going to do it in, in as realistic a way as possible. That's fine. But I also think that, you know, it lends this air of like PSA ish. Like I've talked about this before on the podcast. Like, you know, the like, this like intent to teach people what it means to be a good person or whatever. Like, you know, Marvel does that. I wrote this piece for Defector about Seinfeld, <laughs> wherein I was like, you know, like oh, yeah. Seinf- Seinfeld is kind of like the exact opposite of all of that stuff because they the people are terrible. There's like no lesson to be learned and it's still good TV. And I think that there's a weird sort of shift right now where, People believe that good morals have to be included in something in order for it to be a good work.
0: Yeah, it's, I mean, it, I've always been interested in finding echoes of social statement movies through the decades. And the funny thing being that viewers or critics don't always recognize the similarities between them uh, or, or want sure. to recognize, you know, that they might have something in common, you know, that a you know, just to take a cliche that a well-intentioned Sundance film, you know, about someone un- unlawfully imprisoned might have something in common with, I don't know, like a, a Martin Ritt drama from, from the 70s or something, um, right. you know, right. which which might have something in common with uh, a, a movie from the 50s by a uh, blacklisted screenwriter. I, I mean, I had, this is not really about the depiction of police, but I watched Odds Against Tomorrow. And and that's the one uh, where Robert Ryan. It's it's about a, a bank robbery basically, but I believe it was written by a blacklisted screenwriter. And I mean, he had the brilliant idea of of doing a crime drama, except he populates it with Robert Ryan playing a just you know just kind of matter of fact racist, um, and of course who is teamed up with uh, Harry Belafonte as like the other kind of. Uh, um, person in this three-person team doing a bank robbery that they, they cased this joint out in upstate new york and the person who puts the two of them together doesn't want this to be an issue he just wants them to do the job so i mean that kind of l- l- jumped to mind when you were talking about that elevator image because it's like it, that was it's a really good movie that it kind of puts the structure in front of you of uh, the basic idea being different groups of people will have to live together uh, even if they're criminals and <laughs> they work right, together right. um and yeah. I, somehow it was effective, but now I, I really want to go back and watch report to the commissioner and, and see how that, that feels.
1: It's such a nasty movie. Like in terms of just like the way it looks, <laughs> it's like a real, like, you know, some of those seventies movies and even the sixties, it's like. It's grimy. Just, like, it's grimy looking. Yeah, exactly. They're like sweating and like the, the, <laughs> the, like in the elevator and whatever. But like, but it's interesting what you're saying there too, because I think that, that is a theme in a lot of cop movies is this sort of like people of, of very different backgrounds having to coexist and work alongside each other. Can they do it? And like, or like, this is the reason why they can't because, and this is why the reason, this is the reason why we need the police or whatever. I mean, like fucking the, you know, God, I'm not, I'm going to try not to get too mad, but like, that's like the whole thing of like black Klansmen is like, you know, like, this black police officer in this overwhelmingly white and racist structure. And he's just trying to do good and whatever, blah, blah, blah. And like the conceit of that movie is not that police are corrupt or like that. The institution itself is irredeemably racist, but that like, you know what? Change is tough, but it can happen. And you got to weed out the wrong people. And at the end, Kumbaya. It's like, I don't know. I I I just remember seeing that movie and being like, maybe this is really flippant, but like, you know, the same guy who did do the right thing is making this really pro-policeman movie that like does not at all like reach the same level of sort of just passionate emotion that do the right thing does. Like, and of course that Black Klansman was talked about in such laudatory language and it it was so confusing to me because i don't know this is this is an experience that i think a lot of black people talk about and have written about wherein you know they're watching a different movie than the rest of the theater is watching and like they're I, like looking around and like i remember being i remember being in that theater like so many, just like a lot of white people not all white people but a lot of white people and they're laughing and there and there's like a lot of humor to be Mind from like the weird juxtaposition of like oh man look how like how different he is but he's like really funny and like whatever and like i'm like looking around at these people and being like okay so he's like infiltrating the black panthers which is like this radical political group and that's kind of being played for this weird sort of like romantic narrative that is also like, portraying a very facile image of the Black Panthers. And then there's, like, the KKK. And, like, their portrayal is these, like, like, comedically stupid people. Which, like, yeah, great. Like, it's a low bar to jump for that one. Like, that's an easy laugh. But as the movie's going on, I was like, wow. Out of everyone in this movie, I really only care about Adam Driver's character. Which, like, is probably not the thing that you... Are supposed to do but because he's the one mm. who is like actually going undercover and the stakes set up for him are that you know he's jewish and he hasn't told anyone and yeah i mean the emotional sort of core of that movie is all with him and not with denzel washington's son's character like there's maybe <laughs> maybe the right. through line of this podcast is that we just like talk about Orbit a or constellation of like Denzel Washington related projects that have to do with police or like <laughs> justice, but
0: yeah, <laughs> I mean, if you cast someone with the kind of star charisma of, of Denzel as well, you know, it's that's a whole little storm system in and of itself, you know. It's right. um, I don't know that this is this is just like what I always think of when I watch Taxi Driver, which is like, oh yeah, so he's like a total outcast, but he's also Robert De Niro,
1: yeah. That's the- Yeah, this is one of the weird things about, like, typecasting, which I don't know that, like, with people like De Niro and Denzel Washington, I'm sure they would be very – they would push back against the idea that they've been typecast because, like, they, like, obviously have a lot of star power and so, like, are able to say no to basically whatever they want. But, like, it's funny because it almost almost takes away even more from – the enterprise by being like oh there's john ham playing an fbi agent in the town oh okay it's john ham it's not like a, it's not a cop it's just like it's john ham like there's some people who are too recognizable or like bring too much right. with them for for them to really disappear into a role which is why i think we like fetishize the like transformation of actors when it comes to like different roles is because what you're really talking about is someone who's supremely recognizable doing the most they can to just try and look like a normal person and like (laughs) and that in and of itself becomes its own kind of spectacle that is like another thing that's working against you when you're trying to like dramatize something that is real there's so many weird aspects to that of, of putting something on screen that you know you have to fight through in order to like get to something that feels like it's plausible.
0: Yeah. I don't I don't want to like jump tracks too much here, but I I do want to talk about another movie that you mentioned when we were preparing, which is Minority Report. Uh, only because yeah. it's a case where like Tom Cruise is uh I mean if I say he's a fascinating actor, I don't mean that he's fascinating because of the performances necessarily. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I think he's an actor who has probably changed like american acting basically right. um <laughs> since he I- emerged in, in in the 80s and minority report is a movie i mean which we'll probably talk about in a number of, of ways but i mean he you know plays the lead which is this you know set in the future i think it's like 2052 or something uh, yeah but basically the sh- short thing i want to say is that he just turns me off so much that i <laughs> i don't think I don't think the movie's working the way it's supposed to be working, um, especially that's because funny. he's supposed to be this, this kind of really, you know, go get him appealingly aggressive cop. Who's using the system um, in, in a positive way. Um, you know, is, is a bit arrogant, but that's just, that's the Tom Cruise package. That's what you get. <laughs> this is the movie where uh, Tom Cruise, you know, plays a, a police officer in this pre-crime unit Uh, In the future, they have these three weird psychics that float in this bath and they predict crimes. And he sorts through uh, visuals of what they're predicting and tries to more or less Google around and and figure out where this crime is about to occur, pop up there before it happens and make an arrest. And so the the surface ethical issue of the movie is, is this right? Is this really justice if the, the act has not been committed? But in the process... And this is a movie that has all sorts of things. It, what's fascinating about this movie for me is that it brings up issues like that without really plugging them into, into like actual lived society in any significant way. And it's amazing to me how it just kind of frictionlessly is able to do that. Like a couple other things that come to mind in the movie are just the like wall-to-wall surveillance that's possible, which is just sort of maybe it was menacing to watch that in 2002. I actually can't can't remember too well. but you know, it just seems like it's part of the built environment in the movie, or also how this, the way that the police are able to just, you know, break into apartments and let loose these little spider things that basically will trespass into anyone's apartment and identify them. So again, I mean, Spielberg can make a supreme like pop entertainment. So I don't want to fault him for not making it heavier in a way, but it is, it is interesting that all these issues can be in there, but they they seem too much wrapped up in what's cool and entertaining about the movie. Also, yeah, sort of a very uh, white movie as well in a movie that's full of issues that, you know, now are, you know, rightly often discussed, particularly in terms of how they affect black people. And it's so I don't know. <laughs> this is sort of a mess of stuff, but no,
1: well, that's a, that's the thing is like, OK, so. I'm going to reverse engineer a lot of the stuff that you talked about because I think like, yes, it's all of a piece in like, it is a very, a very weird, but very singular movie for this conversation specifically, which is okay. So I'll start with Tom Cruise. So I think Tom Cruise is fascinating. I've always been fascinated by him. And I think, I honestly think he's a good actor, but the thing about him is because he he is like one of the few larger than life like characters that we still have. Like almost every movie that he's in, especially lately, his character is almost always the underdog. You know, like he, he is someone who is either beset upon by external forces or someone who just like has to fight his way to the goal or whatever's in mind. And like, you know, my report is definitely the former where like, And I think that's also where his sort of like arrogance and like preternaturally smug kind of veneer like kind of comes in because like (laughs) he starts out as this guy who's like extremely confident that everything is fine. And then and then it turns out everything's not fine. And so and then he becomes, you know, Charlie Chaplin. He's like he's like. This is a different conversation for another time. I think Tom Cruise's physical comedic instincts are great, and I think he knows that. But also, I think that in the context of Minority Report, you, you kind of have to, in a Spielberg sense, I guess, be following someone like Tom Cruise through this world because the incidental details, they live on. And even if they aren't the core part or like focus of the movie, I think that stuff especially when you're talking about science fiction is what grounds you to the world that you're in and I think that I honestly think it would be a mistake if that movie had made a bigger deal out of the technology that's around the way that surveillance works in that movie and like and the sort of just state of affairs of America in the future I think like what makes that movie work to me is that you throw it away and it becomes more plausible because of that. And I mean, even now, like, look where we are. Like, you don't, it's not, maybe we don't have like sentient sort of artificial spiders that go and like identify people. But, you know, we do have (laughs) smartphones and computers that track your like internet usage and, you know, voice activated devices that listen to you. And, you know, the police are privy to all manner of technology that are listening to your conversations or, you know... I was doing research for this piece wherein I'm like talking about surveillance and like, you know, the technology that the police use. And like, there's this thing called shot spotter where it's like an audio device that is placed in a certain part of town. And it's it's specifically designed to listen for gunshots. And then it like reports that to the police. But there's also the thing because of this proprietary private technology, like, no one knows to, to what degree it's listening to the stuff that's around it. You also have a movie we should really be talking about in this conversation is All Light Everywhere, which I think, mm. you know, that movie puts a very, 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 very specific eye on the way that, like, technology is weaponized by the state in order to, one, craft a narrative of competency and, like, objectivity with the police so that it can absolve them of wrongdoing, you know, in the context of like body cams and listening devices and just like the entire enterprise of proof or evidence that something happened. And I think Minority Report is like a really great companion piece to that because the world that exists to me is really scary in that movie because it's like, You know, even just, I think there's so many really thought-provoking parts to that movie that are, again, thrown away. Like, the part where, after Tom Cruise is on the run, because the way that the precog system works, there's these three siblings, these psychics, who have a vision of the future. And after that vision is seen, it's processed through the system wherein it spits out the name of the perpetrator and the name of the victim, And because their, like, visions aren't precise, the police look through the images that are taken from their brains of, like, the visions and try to figure out where they are in order to prevent this thing from happening. And, you know, this is a Philip K. Dick novella, short story that Minority Report is based on. And, like, you know, in true fashion, the Philip K. Dick original is like extremely paranoid like it's it's like way more sort of caustic than the movie is but a wrinkle to that which i think is very interesting in the sort of cinematic context is that in the movie the the precogs can only see murder that's it they can't see rape they can't see muggings they can't see like other crimes they can only see murder and there's like a whole metaphysical reason for that that they explain in the movie but you know as this is going on there's never a point in the movie where you're like oh you're also being surveilled by these three people who can like see everything basically and like they can't focus their powers because like it's never explained to the degree to which like how powerful they are or whatever but there is like the implication that in this world where and you know cameras can scan your eyes and like then create on the spot like personalized advertisements to like try and sell you jeans or whatever it's like it may be because that movie like anticipated a lot of things that are now just commonplace to us and i think that it is interesting to think that the end result of that movie is that pre-crime which is the division its pilot program is in washington dc which is a big part of that movie is like it's not in the whole country. The whole point is that they're trying to f- to show that it's ethical here so that right. they can use it through elsewhere. But then it's revealed to be completely like it's built on a bed of lies and like the person who's leading pre-crime like it's covering up a murder that he did a really long time ago, blah, blah, blah. But one of the <laughs> wild things to me about that movie is that it ends with the police basically being disbanded. It's discredited publicly, and they get rid of it and like there's a you know sort of reddit kind of debate wherein you don't know if that ending is real or not because of the way that incarceration works in that movie too. like pre-crime has now created this population of people who physically did not do anything wrong but were going to, and now are forced in the most horrific way possible. They are sedated and put into this unending loop of like watching the crime that they were supposed to have committed. And so like the future of this movie is that criminals are lobotomized and just forced to like live through a reality that never actually happened. And that's ultimately like at one point in the movie, what happens to Tom Cruise's character? He gets caught after trying to prove his innocence because the whole thing is, like, he's on the run because he's supposed to kill this person that he's never met before. And when they catch him, you know, he gets the same treatment, right? Like, they shave his head and, like, they, like, put him in this, like, sort of drug-induced coma. And the rest of the movie that follows, there's the theory that, like, it actually is just a fantasy of his. That, like, Uh, he is imagining what he wishes had happened in that like the bad guys get, you know, taken care of and in, you know, cool, like, you know, anti-fascist fashion, you know, they like disband the police at the end, which like, I don't know, that's like kind of cool. But like, anyway, so like, I think that movie is like really interesting for a bunch of reasons, but I do think that because it just exists in its own world and creates the rules of that world off of our own world, like our world just functions as like a template rather than a sort of like reflection. It makes that movie much more temporally durable because like the ideas in that movie are so strong and, and so well thought out that I, I don't know. I think every year that movie becomes better and better because every year it literally just seems like we're getting closer to that kind of reality. And like, I think, you know, there's obviously a conversation you could have about the fact that like, there really are like no black people in that movie or whatever. But like, I think, you know, the more fruitful conversation is to think, okay, like if this is where policing is going, like if this is a thing where if unchecked, the police can start to just like, arrest people for things they haven't done which they do anyway don't get me wrong and have done for forever (laughs) but like if there was like a state mandated sort of like stratified program where they were allowed to do that it's like kind of like yeah that's like really scary and like i think in the context of the current sort of social conversation that we're having about policing that movie is like really interesting because it has everything. It has the cop, it has the good guy who's on the run and like wants to save the system, but then finds out the system sucks. And like, you know, he's trying to find his buddies and all of his buddies want to believe him, but they're trapped in the system so they can't help him. So he turns to criminals that he put away to help him. There's like, I don't know. There's like so many layers to that movie that Spielberg is able to do that stuff really well. And like, you know, he makes bad movies sometimes, but I think, someone like him excels at building out the world, getting you through it very quickly so that you're not having to learn a lot and like just right. lets the plot go. And like on the way you're going to like see all this stuff that's like whoa, like that's an amazing detail that only further sort of legitimizes like the thing that you're watching. So yeah, I don't know. I love I yeah. love that movie and I think that and Tom Cruise being that guy is always interesting to me because i think people have a conception that tom cruise does not want to play certain kinds of characters namely like villains or like people who are like morally suspect i don't think that's true though like if you really look at his filmography yeah he's played villains before he's played like you know the like really shitty politician like he's he's been those people it's just that the movie around him has to function in a certain way in order for him to like feel okay doing it. (laughs) I think like he has to have some sort of, if not redeeming quality, then the thing that just makes him look really interesting in order for his sort of ego to be sated. And I think like, you know, Minority Report is definitely like the epitome of an ego driven movie wherein no matter how you know crazy things get and no matter how stupid he might look or no matter how idealistic he is and no matter how many times he gets shot down the point of the movie is that you're rooting for him and i think that's like what tom cruise wants is like in every movie he wants you to root for him a little bit and i think yeah. that's how he like is able to have like escaped cancellation anyway that's a whole other different thread anyway <laughs>
0: Well, I mean, it's, it's also funny that it's, it's become kind of a, well, literally a running joke with him that the characters he plays are at some point going to be running full tilt for whatever reason. Yeah, um, exactly. And yeah.
1: And I don't think that's incidental. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's, I mean, y- you can imagine it's almost something he demands, you know, he's like, you know, I got to have a character who's active. He's got to move, you know, he's got to, a character has to make progress you know and and, and one way they do that is they run you that's how you see the urgency Dru- running is drama you know so it's like no yeah and like and he's kind
1: of right like i love watching him run like it's my favorite <laughs> thing when all of his movies and it's always it's always so fun to see when he does it for
0: what weird reason
1: so like yeah i don't know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's it's it is true I, I i can't deny the the, the entertainment value of, of watching him run because he He believes in running, you know, the way like, you know, other actors believe in in their characters or he's totally committed, like, and to see someone totally committed to running is sort of invigorating, also a little comical, but definitely dramatic.
1: (laughs) No, exactly. Um, And I think those are all things that he wants. So,
0: yeah, but I mean, it's true. I mean, this is a movie where it's a system that seems, you know, on the one hand, it's very advanced the justice system because it's it, they seem to have solved something, and he's the person who finds that there's a flaw that he brings out the flaw in it. So he is still the hero in that sense because although in the beginning he is like the representative, he's like the the spokesperson more or less the uh, the avatar of that system. He is also the one who who can who can bring it down. But I, I think it's really interesting connecting it to Old Light everywhere as as he did. You know, because you know, one other thing that Minority Report reminds me of is how in the US especially technology, you know, is able to put this veneer of Goodness, in a way, because yeah. it's it's objective. It's it's ostensibly objective, or it's it's what we call objective. You know, if it, it's like a, a, a machine did it, there there can be no feelings involved. So obviously, it's it's objective. Um, so that'll go for you know body cams. That'll that'll apply to precog, even though there's this built-in absurdity with precog, which is that it's these three psychics.
1: They very, like, very, very sort of quickly mention that it may be because of, like, a birth defect because their mother was an addict. And so, like, there's, like, a weird sort of, like, there's, like, a future drug called Neuroin that, like, um, like, you know, is not explained, like, you know, what its effects are, but they talk about how, like, their mother, who ends up being... The person that the leader of Precog killed, you know, in order to like take them and use them for the system, like, um, was an addict, and that maybe that led to some sort of mutation that like allowed right. to have this power. Anyway,
0: you know, actually, that reminds me. One other the weird thing about this movie, which is that this is a system of justice that's based upon three people who are what are their status exactly because they basically seem to be captives of the state
1: no exactly that's the other thing too which i which again like i think this is why that movie is so cool is because like it raises that question as well like he has to like in order to prove his innocence tom cruise's character has to kidnap one of the precogs like to decipher whether or not he has the titular thing which is a minority report which is like the way the system works is that All three siblings have a vision of this thing. And if they all see the same thing, basically if they all see the same reality, then it gets pushed through to the next stage, next phase, which like is like identification of this person. But it's possible for them to disagree. And that's not known. Like like Tom Cruise's character has no idea that this is a thing. And so when that happens this minority report can either show an alternate future wherein the person doesn't do the thing that they're supposed to or might like outright just like throw the case away because it's too complicated to divine whether or not it's going to happen. But because of that, like, anyway, to answer your question, like they're drugged up, like the three precogs are like kept in a state of like, they're almost comatose Um, and all they can do really are like speak like in like sort of one to three word sentences. And yeah, they're, they're basically held captive, but they don't know it. They are functionally unaware of the like world around them. And there's this like great part where when Tom Cruise's character kidnaps, uh, one of the precogs who's played by Samantha Morton, she is like coming off of the drugs that they've given her. And she's, like, looking around at the world and they're driving. And she keeps asking, like, is it now? Because she only, like, lives in the future or the past and, like, has never experienced what real life is like. So, yeah, there's just, like, I don't know, levels upon levels of just, like, really scary stuff that, like, implications that you can make a whole different movie out of, like, so many of them.
0: Yeah. Well, I might might use this as a kind of a segue because one thing that keeps getting stuck in my head about my Minority Report is that I mean, especially when you watch it now, since so many aspects uh, or some aspects of it are really just part of our daily life, you know, like the ad targeting definitely for for one thing. Um, But that makes me think of uh, the question of realism, which is, uh, I mean, one thing we were talking about just before we started, I was kind of positing that, you know, we use the word realism, you know, from one decade to the next, from one generation to the next, but we are really talking about a different thing like every 10 to 15 years when we say realism, because what people consider to be realism, the the principles of it change, you know, what makes something gritty realism changes from, from, you know, one 10 year period, 15 year period to the next. And I began to think about Minority Report is it's like all the things you bring up about it that are are really, uh, you know, prescient or and and sharp. I feel like at the time I would have thought of it as like, it's a dystopia. So the thing about a dystopia is that it's kind of a projection of your current reality, but at the same time, it's kept removed from your current reality because it's something that's in the future. It's kind of like the way things could turn out, but aren't turning out, uh, don't have to turn out, I mean, necessarily. So there's an interesting way where a dystopia is very grounded in extending the, uh, elaborating on the possibilities of what the world might look like but at the same time it's kept removed from it. So there's kind of, it's a kind of realism that maybe I would call like a conceptual realism. Um, Right. So in, in, so in the sense, like when I saw minority report in 2002, much or most of that struck me as like being, Oh yeah, that's really realistic. That's how things uh, would, would play out. Yeah. But now if you watch, now if you watch it, it kind of acquires a different kind of realism, which is like, Oh, (laughs) this is actually helping illustrate a, a lot of things that are, are very much, you know, top of mind now in terms of like you know whatever over law enforcement overreach or wh- however you want to phrase it, or even right. it's kind of interesting that it is a pilot pro- pilot program in the movie, you know, and and I mean, yeah. So po- maybe politically or something there too, but I don't know that that's kind of something that came came to mind. How our our notion of realism, you know, might might shift shift now.
1: I also think that like the realism thing is interesting, just because like. Realism, I think, in the last 20 years, maybe longer, really just functions on, like, uh, cynicism, almost. <laughs> like Or, like, unflinching uh, like witnessing of bad stuff or whatever. And I think, like, Spielberg is often accused of the opposite. Realism is not a word that is often used to describe his work. And I think in the best cases, that's a good thing because realism is also talked about in the context of the way that people act in movies, right? Like, oh, that's not a realistic response to this thing or like, no one would ever do that. Like, that's not realistic, whatever. And I think in any case, it, like it is dependent upon the movie and the sort of narrative that you're doing. And I think Minority Report is interesting because like you said, it is very conceptually real but it is able to leave reality behind and sort of take you on a very, con- not con- I say conventional, not as a judgment, but like in just familiar sense, like a very conventional story. And through that invite you to ask certain questions, which I think is one of the challenges of portraying certain things on screen is that almost not always, but like, sometimes the oblique direction or angle is probably the best way to go about it because you then inculcate yourself from looking really stupid, like 20 years later, <laughs> just because like, <laughs> I think, of course there's something can be said for people just out and out making a statement being like, this is what I think is like true to this point in time. I don't care about like the next 20 years. Like I told, I have total respect for that too, because I think, that is also important. But mm. for movies like Minority Report, for science fiction in general, you know, that that is speculative, that is trying to paint a dystopia that does not seem so outlandish, you know, like you do have to heighten things in order to just like kind of get away from people scratching their heads about like why a certain thing isn't happening. Like, And I think that's what the best sort of standout movies and TV shows of that kind of genre do and is like a fundamental sort of like wrinkle for, for contemporary movies that are commenting on that kind of thing, because I don't know, like, how do you present racism on screen? (laughs) Like not like as a, It's not an easy question to answer, like, and I think that's why a lot of times, you know, that is an aspect of policing that is sort of done by rote, because, among other things, with a movie, you're trying to clearly get something across, and I think when it comes to people's prejudices, it often gets uh, cartoonish because, like, they're trying to convey this thing. And in do in trying to do so in an obvious way, it becomes too obvious. And then, like, it becomes not real for a completely different reason. So, yeah, mm-hmm. it's like a catch-22 kind of thing. Like, you either have to ground it in a very specific situation like Training Day does, which is, like, mm-hmm. all about this one day, or you have to sort of widen the scope in a way that allows you to have your cake and eat it too, where you're talking about real social issues, but not in a way that makes it seem like you have all the answers. And I think that's another part, like component to this conversation about policing, about abolishing the police, about defunding the police is that no one knows what it's like really to function in a world without police because it's not really been done before and and you know maybe that is the next phase of speculative imagination is like maybe the companion piece to minority report is in the future there are no police what would happen you know
0: well i mean that that's it's interesting that you know, imagining a world, imagining an alternative to like the current model of social order or something. I mean, the function that a lot of dystopias end up having, I mean, intentionally or not is that they make an alternate version of society seem sort of scary and, and, and um, you know, dehumanizing, you know, I mean, that's kind of minority report keeps making, well, keeps making, I mean, it has like two or three definite references to a clockwork orange um i guess he still kind of had kubrick on the brain after making ai right i mean you know with the eyes being held open for the operation and then there's like a beggar that's reminded me a lot of the, like that cool yeah 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 and a couple other things as well with that movie it, it's basically that oh well in the future we could solve all these problems but it would involve in, in in a way that wouldn't involve police but it would involve taking away people's free will and then you wouldn't be a person anymore um yeah that's the, the, like that's central... the other problem
1: about like that yeah sort of thought exercise is that i think up until now people have been far too cynical about about a policeless world they're like oh crime would run ramp i mean that's like it's operating on a fear that a lot of people have like that is like Okay, if we don't have police then what are we going to have? And is it just going to be chaos like or I don't know, like the Purge series sort of like speaks to that in a in a very very sort of oh god, yeah. Like uh, retro, you know, kind of 70s like exploitation kind of way, which is kind of cool cuz it's like all right, like if the operating thesis of those films is that society is her- inherently like, you know, ruled by people's id and like people's it is terrible because they just want to kill people or rape people or steal stuff like whatever and you know we have to let them get it out or else like nothing is going to like keep society from tearing itself apart and like you know whether or not the people who make those movies believes that it is like a pretty provocative idea because probably a lot of people fear that and i think Mm -hmm. you know it speaks to how second nature it is for us to just not question authority all that much that police, no matter how much we talk about them, there are still so many people who are like, yeah, but like what, <laughs> but, but what do we do if they're not around? Like, the, are we going to like, are we going to all eat each other or something? So.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's true. Like, Cause it's, Sometimes I almost, it's almost a failure of, or, or, I, I mean, we're talking about movies. So sometimes it's almost like a failure of visual imagination. You know, I, I begin to think of how a lot of the police movies that we're, we're talking about and we're thinking about, we've been fed these all our lives, you know? I mean, that's, right. that's the picture of a functioning society that, that we know we're, we're not really fed a lot of images of, what an alternative would look like or how it might work a little, a little differently. How how do we model different, different realities? And, but yeah, I mean, the purge is just something I might want to revisit just because of its repulsion slash attraction to the the chaos of the political body of, of, of like the the body politic of like the crowd, you know?
1: Yeah. Well, and I also think a companion conversation to this one is that like, we're talking about police and I think, the purge and still training day. Like there's a, there's a different conversation to be talked about, like who the criminals are. Like, I think that the portrayal of criminality in movies is like kind of inseparable from this conversation just because it's like, okay, but who are the bad guys and how do they act? And like, in what ways does that justify (laughs) the police being there? You know, like I think, there's like the sort of bizarro companion to minority report in terms of speculation and like sci-fi is Judge Dredd, right? Like it's like that's a dystopia oh. where in the police just fucking execute people based on just like very arbitrary sort of markers where a lot of their perception of the world and of of public life is mediated through you know this ai system that like identifies criminals and perpetrators and the only way that you only have two options you either i think you just like literally like live out the rest of your life in a box or they kill you and like you know the whole thing of like judge Dredd's line is like i am the law like i think is probably it's like the metastasization of that idea that is also real too. Like uh, that also speaks to something that is absolutely a thing that happens now. Like, you know, the extra judicial execution of people by the state is not fiction. And I think that it still turns on a, on a fear of extremes of either no police or really, 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 really bad police. And I think we've just whacked the middle <laughs> of like, and by the middle, I don't mean good police or like morally complicated police, but like no police at all. And so.
0: There was one a movie that I, I did want to bring up as well, because it's definitely something that sort of read differently to me now. This is why I wanted to bring it up because, you know, the extrajudicial killings, I mean, that's like, throughout the film history of westerns you know we we're just like drowning in it the the issue of frontier justice and how that's kind of sorted through across the history of westerns sometimes you know celebrated sometimes problematized sometimes you know not and bad day at black rock set in in an oldish west uh but not like very old west more like What do they have? They have cars. Okay, so not old at all. But (laughs) it's a frontier town and basically uh, Spencer Tracy comes to town to investigate uh, a crime but it's a town that is completely under the thumb of, again, Robert Ryan and he's going to try to run Spencer Tracy out of town and and, and it's basically totally, feels like a totally corrupt town but over the course of the movie you come to understand that it's a town that's you know, maybe some people are corrupt. For example, Lee Marvin, uh, who is amazing in this movie, but a lot of people are just terrified. And that's not to excuse how act or how they cover things up. But it was amazing to me because I was watching this movie as he can barely even discover the, the facts of the crime, which is that a Japanese American citizen of the town disappeared and it was apparently killed and it's been covered up. And the sheriff is just one of the most pitiful sheriffs I've ever seen on screen. You actually feel pity for him as well, because he's completely has given up all his authority. And, and uh, anyway, but that's a movie where I think when I saw it originally, it just saw it just seemed like a sort of, you know, dark drama. But watching it again, I kind of saw it structurally in an interesting, interesting to me way. Um and that that came to mind anyway when you were talking just now about this kind of American fantasy of something beyond justice, of the ability to divine who who is guilty and and then just take care of it without any of these silly distractions. Um,
1: No, totally. I mean, like, the Western is all about, like, the Western usually functions in a sort of, like, not just extrajudicial, like, justice, like vigilante justice, but also the idea that there are some people who have to be put down. <laughs> you know, like um, in the more racist ones, it's like obviously Native Americans, but there is this very pronounced sense of retribution that often features, you know, the actual police being sort of cucked in a weird way or, um, you know, under the auspices of Jim Crow, like in you know, post, like, and like slavery era, like policing, you know, there, there is not an insignificant parallel historically between, you know, the police and like the slave catchers and, you know, this idea that you're talking about of like people being ruled by fear, like that was and is true. It's just that it's only for specific groups of people who are afraid of that kind of um, action you know like the the way that the police has functioned to you know uh, protect the interests of white citizens specifically like middle class upper middle class white citizens and how on the level of literally policing people in terms of how they're allowed to live and where they're allowed to live and the type of life they're allowed to lead. It's like that aspect of the police is rarely uh, foregrounded that, that association there of like the very racist sort of history that they have and any extension of the state, whether it's the police or the military or anyone, it's like, you don't have to look very hard to find like the institutional mandate to act a certain way. And I think, you know, with the Western, it takes on a different role because it's not just about justice and retribution, but it's also about the right to exist in a certain way. And it's always Mm -hmm. ironic to me that, like, the people who are fighting for their right to wander around or to just live their lives are all, like, white dudes. (laughs) So, you know.
0: (laughs) That's the persistent, like, political fallacy like <laughs> at the heart of at uh, the heart of the country that yeah well dirty harry was it was a movie that came to mind um that used to be pretty pretty central to any discussion about police
1: well yeah and it's also like i think there is like an unmistakable a very 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 deliberate sort of narrative demarcation between police and detectives in movies like often the detectives are not they're not seen as police because they're not necessarily policing anyone they're investigating but they are still part of you know that whole system and i think that's often why detectives are more sympathetic characters is because they're they're out to get the bad guy and you know the bad guy is so obviously evil and doing such shitty things and like there's the air of mystery to it that like it doesn't take on the same sort of atmosphere as something where you're watching someone arrest someone because they did something wrong or whatever. It's like, Oh, there's like, there's intrigue here. And like, and we have to figure out what went wrong. Cause everyone loves a puzzle, you know?
0: Yeah. The, the detective, well, especially there's the private detective, which is like this kind of, platonic version of the investigating person you know which is that they're not like affiliated yeah with law enforcement in, in, in any way so they are just out there solving crimes and solving mysteries sort of frictionlessly again just like without having the baggage of being you know representative of the state and most, most of the time they're also kind of these you know mavericks or outsiders so they have that kind of frisson Police detective is a, is a whole whole other deal. And that's another instance instance where it's so very complex when you think about it in terms of realism because I feel like the, the reality of, you know, a, a police detective is, of, of, of who they are and the, and the kind of people that they are, is their very particular sensibility. Um, I mean, speaking of cynicism, you know, I mean, just rewatching The Departed, just, you know, uh, there's that line that martin sheen has or something or you know where we deal in deceptions you know right. that kind of underlying assumption that everything something's going on with everything
1: well just like it doesn't i don't think it matters the distinction i think the the private eye is there as like the guy who can do all the things that the police legally can't whatever right but like it just depends on the situation like knives out which like is about a private eye is someone who works directly with the police. Like, I mean, like, it's not like he, <laughs> right. But and like in the end, you know, he's smarter than the police, but it's not like he has some sort of mandate to be like, no, I don't work with police officers or whatever. And then you have the opposite of that, which is like Zodiac, which is like, is one of the most prominent examples of how the police and detectives are intertwined, and how those two worlds often are at odds with each other because detectives in movies, at least, you know, are on a. They're looking at the long view, right? They're trying to find the person, mm. and it's less about quick results and more about, you know, trying to do the right thing and getting the right person, you know? Same thing with like Mindhunter. Like, you've got like mm-hmm. the. Evolution of policing to involve serial killers and like profiling people and like all this stuff, you know. Like the science of police work is often very compelling because it's like you're talking about the the ways that you're trying to divine the identity of someone or their pattern of behavior or you know why they do the things that they do, and like detectives get to have all that stuff and do so without the sort of baggage of a normal day-to-day like beat cop or something because ostensibly they're not dealing in racism or whatever. Of course that's not true. Like, you know, like, I mean, even Zodiac probably downplays this aspect of the case, but like in the movie, you know, like they interview like police officers being like, okay, so you think you saw this guy? And one of the police officers is like, Yeah, no, it was this big black guy and Mark Ruffalo's character is like, our description of him is not black. So like, why did you, why did you make that call? And like, it's like a really funny moment that I think Mm. in real life, that was like a pretty big wrinkle for the case because like, it was like, oh shit, like they're just racially profiling someone and hoping to get this guy. But like the guy is like very clearly by multiple eyewitnesses, like described as white like so yeah i don't know like there's there's a lot to that sort of genre slash type of police person which is like you know and they're allowed to have more personality because of it right you're following like a guy or like a couple people who are because of their weird quirks or whatever good investigators and less about like oh i'm beholden to like the strictures of police law and so because of that i can't do stuff like you know like there's a violence component to cops that's not there with detectives Mm. like detectives are investigating violence in movies more often than they are like causing violence and so like i think that is also you know a point of intrigue for them that makes it less queasy to like be rooting for
0: them right right because they're yeah force isn't isn't really they're somehow above the fray a little bit. And yeah, I mean, if the police represent justice, detectives represent the truth or something like that, or, or, right, or right. some, I don't know, or even, even some higher ideal of, I, I don't know, of just the mystery of the the, the mystery that is the human being. And that's so detectives help illuminate for us as they, they unravel something. Right. Serial killers. I, uh, you know, the serial killer dramas, I, I, I love Zodiac. I uh, Mindhunter was interesting because in a way they're, I guess they were FBI, but they could have just as well been like sociologists in a way. That, it, was, yeah. it, was, I, it was strange that that series uh, existed in some way because it really seemed to be more of like a sociological fascination going on there, which is this kind of, for me, it was this kind of imagining a kind of uh, fall, a fall from from grace that that at some point in like the I don't know 70s we were able to identify this particular type of evil we didn't even know it could exist in people. Um, and then that's that's what the kind of obsessive fascination was there. That at some point things got even worse <laughs> somehow. No, yeah it's true. I mean like serial
1: killers are very safe like in in their yep, terms yep. because they are only ever a very specific kind of person and like, and mostly white. <laughs> they're mostly white dudes in movies and in real life. I think like I could be totally speaking out of turn there. Like I, I'm not sure, but like in movies at least, you know, they're almost yeah. always like some creepy white dude that like, you know, <laughs> and I think Mindhunter is interesting because I, I actually don't think it is odd that it came out when it did because i think one there was a big true crime like wave of Mm -hmm. interest that was coming around at that time and also i think like and people never tire of wanting to see why people do shit like i think and because like you know one of the big promises of the second season of that movie is like you know they get to the big baddie which is charles manson you know like i think like (laughs) And he's never not interesting in, like, you know, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was coming out, and, like, there was, like, mm-hmm. a resurgence of interest in that area. I think, like, and, like, literally the <laughs> in that situation, the guy who plays Charles Manson in Mindhunter is also the guy who plays Charles Manson in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Like, I don't know. I think, like, uh. there's... <laughs> it's the same actor, but, like, yeah. So I think, like, on that level, the popularity of sociological language in like real life and just like this kind of interest in diagnosing people with stuff playing out in a stratified sense and like you you trying and you seeing that happen in the the origin story of like the term serial killer i think like is very revealing of a certain kind of social interests we must have for that kind of thing and like the dark depths of like people's psyche or whatever you know like that stuff never becomes people tire of it slower than like a different sort of narrative and I think that's kind of why the detective sleuth sort of like muckraking individual is always so compelling is because it's like the thesis there is that, you know, we just want to understand each other and like, and we're, and we all turn out to be way weirder than we think we are.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. I guess the other thing about serial killers is that another point of fascination I get is that there's no, there's no like criminal intent. It seems purely like psychotic.
1: Yeah. They're all aberrant, you know, they all, have, yeah, they're they, all aberrant. They, they don't make sense in a, in a sort of traditional sense, which is also why they're so interesting. It's like, oh, they have this weird fixation or whatever. And it's less about, there's less recognizable motivations there than like maybe a stereotypical criminal would be portrayed having.
0: Right. The mystery encompasses like their very nature Yeah. So it complicates the the satisfaction of of detective stories also is that, uh, or or police dramas and thrillers generally, which is being able to solve something, being able to get to the bottom of something, a crime, solve a crime, which (laughs) someone just pointed out that like, actually, I mean, in terms of like success rates, I think partly because it's a hard thing to do, but like, we think of the police as like constantly solving crimes, but it's not actually something that can happen or happens, you know?
1: It doesn't happen often at all. Yeah. Like, it's not, and that's like another point of fascination too, like cold cases or like, you know, unsolved mm -hmm. murders or the mystery of this thing that like, we still don't know all the details to like. I don't know that, like, it's so funny because it's staring people in the face of being like, okay, yeah, like, why isn't this, <laughs> is this a matter of metaphysical, like, intrigue? Or is it maybe that the, the people who are doing this are not good at their jobs? Like, or is it because it's really hard and it involves a different tack than police work? You know, like, that's something that's always been around, but like, no one's really ever consistently asking that question of being like, oh, yeah, like, why is it that there are so few crimes that are solved? Is it because, you know, in the ooga-booga, true detective kind of way, there's, like, some weird thing happening? Like, or is it, like, <laughs> is it probably far more mundane than
0: that? <laughs> it's funny. And, I, I mean, this is where, maybe this is where I'll mention, like, I, I just happened to watch uh, Experiment in Terror, uh, which is this, Blake Edwards movie from 1962, and it was just it was just kind of funny to watch. I hadn't really planned to watch it for this, but I couldn't help thinking about it in this light. And it's it's a movie that's still is kind of stuck in the like G-man um, mindset a little bit in that you know Glenn Ford plays this totally focused police officer, and you just you trust that he's doing the right thing. I mean, I mean, you you assume it. You know, I don't even think you question it that he would be doing the right thing. Um, and you don't question that he'll be eventually probably solving it. And it, you know, it, it strikes me that that's, I don't know, it was it was an interesting movie in that regard that it felt like it was looking backward a little bit in that it was kind of this older model of, even the way they sh- they shoot and frame Glenn Ford and, and his partner in the movie, and even the way they they act, their performance styles, they're kind of, They're given license to be kind of affectless. I mean, just sort of, I guess, stern and serious, but also a little affectless. Like there are these, there are this embodiment on screen of this objective representative of the the law, Uh, even as it's in a movie that's kind of post-psycho style, kind of trying to be a little uh, skeezy. But anyway, that's just to say that interesting how we're fed these kind of perfect models of yeah, mystery solvers and, and justice yeah we've really covered a um, ton of different angles on this and i kind of like that we have i mean i feel like there's still so many loose ends and i kind of like that because i don't one thing i hate like is i don't want to pretend that i have some like definitive take on on any of this so to speak um and also i just want to do a shot i also want to give a shout out to the to a kind of movie like bad lieutenant which just has nothing to do with anything other than the just the revoltingness of that human being in the movie, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. and I, I love that movie, so yeah, there's there's so many other movies we could talk about and other things to say, but um, any any like parting thoughts?
1: Parting thoughts are hard for this one just because I think it yeah, it's a very complex conversation, and there are so many different facets to it. Like when you really think about the role of police in movies, you kind of branch off into so many different directions like i think that this conversation is evidence of that that you could really drill down into and and keep talking about for hours um and that stuff is sort of exciting to me in a way because it it just proves that there's a lot to reckon with there yeah and and that's like part of the work of like deciding how you move forward is like you gotta sort of try and understand the degree to which this thing has like infiltrated your life and like your
0: conception of the world. Yeah, and just thinking about how central it ends up being to a lot of different forms of thriller or or drama feels like one step or one other way also of recentering or, or decentering. So we'll leave it at there for now. But uh, Nicholas, thanks again.
1: Oh, yeah, my pleasure. I'm happy to ramble and sort of have no <laughs> real understanding of what I'm saying from sentence to sentence on this podcast. So thank you.
0: <laughs> You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. If you like what you heard, please consider signing up at rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music from their song Montserrat. Thank you for listening.